Father, we're grateful that you have brought us together in this final week of our series together on the Old Testament, and I thank you that you have not left us to our own devices, Lord, to conceive of you and your world, but that you have spoken, that you have revealed yourself. I pray, Lord, that you will help us this morning to understand. I pray that you'll give the one teaching clarity. I pray that you'll give those who are here to listen, um, hearts and minds uh, to receive. And Lord, as we say all the time, we'll say it again. If any of that happens, we will know that it's because of your kindness and your grace to us. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Well, it's week number six in our uh, big view. So this is, me. This, this is it. Um, so we're, we're just going to, I'm just going to start reading the Old Testament. We'll stop when we're done. No, we, we, this, <laughs> there's been a lot of gaps. I realize this. And, and I haven't left much time for questions. I'd like to do that today. I just want you to know I'd like to. Um, I, I don't know if there will, but, I, but I'd like to. Um, so if you think about the way in which we, we've tried to structure our time together over the six weeks, it's by taking at least, or at least giving a nod in the direction of the way in which the Hebrew canon structures the Old Testament. And that is, you remember this tripart, tripartite division that we've talked about probably ad nauseum. Um, the law, the prophets, and the writings. You, know, you may recall when Jesus has that encounter with the disciples on the road to Emmaus, and then he's in the house with them having a Bible study, revealing himself to them from Scripture. You may recall that Jesus speaks to them from the law and the prophets, or Moses and the prophets, and then later on in that same chapter, um, he says, Jesus again, explaining himself on the basis of the law, the prophets, and the Psalms. Now, I, I, I wouldn't necessarily go to the guillotine over this, but I do feel pretty convinced that when Jesus says the Psalms there, He's not referring solely to the Psalter alone, but to the third part of that tripartite, tripartite division, that third part that we call the writings. Most of the lists of the canon that we have put the Psalms as the first book in, in this section called the writings. So the law, the prophets, and the writings. Now, I'm going to hop in here um, but, and, and try to give some clarity to a little bit of this. But I should say that I'm becoming more convinced that the way in which that tripartite canon works, law, prophets, writings, emphasizes the first two sections, the law and the prophets. So much so that the law and the prophets become a kind of shorthand grammar uh, for the whole of the Old Testament. It, it forms the basis theologically, the law and the prophets, in mutual relationship, the one to the other, informing us about God, His ways, His covenant with Israel, and His future plan of redemption. That that forms the basis of what we might call the substantial heart of the Old Testament. And the writings that come after that in the third part are a reflection on life lived in the reality of the anterior character of the law and, and, and the prophets. For example, how does Psalm 1 begin? I always get these things mixed up. How blessed is the man who does not stand, who does not walk, or how's it going to stand, walk, sit, right? With, with the ungodly, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And that, that word law, we talked about this last week, is a little heavy laden. It might even be better just to refer to that as the instruction of the Lord. Um, the person who is 
planted by the side of a, of a river and, and the fruit comes off of their life that's easily picked, according to Psalm 1, is the person that delights in God's instruction, that delights in God's revelation of Himself, that delights in what God has to say over against the best of our own human resources and, and reasoning. That person is blessed. That's the person who, do you remember this Hebrew term we tossed out? We tossed out Hebrew just to kind of, you know, it's a little bit of a willpower thing. Um, but do you know this Hebrew term, Hagah, uh, to meditate? It's, 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 the same, it's the same word that's used to talk about a cooing of a dove or a lion that's chewing on its gazelle that it just ate. It's an onomatopoetic word, Hagah, Hagah, Hagah. That's what, that's what meditation is, reflection continued chewing over, continued thinking about the instruction of the Lord. What does David say? Your law is sweeter to me, your instruction is sweeter to me than a honeycomb. What is Psalm 119, the longest of the Psalms in the book of Psalms? What is Psalm 119 about? Well, you may have seen this in your Bibles, but all these Hebrew terms or letters show up. Aleph, Beit, Gimel, Dalit, all the way down to Tav. It's, it's an acrostic that begins with Aleph, and then goes all the way, which is A, I guess, not really, but A, and then all the way to the final letter of the Hebrew canon, Tav, from Aleph to Tav. We might translate that into our own idiom, from A to Z. And it's a reflection on the importance of the instruction of God, the revelation of God, the fact that God has spoken and His Word is a light unto our feet. It's a lamp for our going. It's, it's the guide for our journey along the way. And so even the structure of Psalm 119 tells us that all of life from the Aleph to the Tav, all of life from the A to the Z, finds its resource, finds its conception of the world, finds its way of articulating its own place in the world and reality itself on the basis of the revealed Word of the Lord, on the basis of His instruction. And it's good. It's rich. So what else does the wisdom literature tell us? Well, the wisdom literature tells us, Psalm 1, that a person is blessed who reflects, who orders his or her life, who chews on the instruction of God and allows that to be the sole basis for his or her existence. That person is blessed. Except for when it just doesn't seem to be going that way. And this is the tension that I think we begin to feel as we move into that section of the canon referred to as the writings. Now, there are these large statements about life lived before God, the joy that comes from living underneath the, the umbrella of God's instruction, His Torah, His law. But then there's also this other side. The flip side that, get, again, is getting into our reality. Is getting into the fact that we sort of live life in this world. And, um, and so you have things like Psalm 73. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. And then he goes on to say something that I think is actually rather profound given the standpoint of the Psalter. He goes on to say, Asaph does in Psalm 73, Surely God is good to Israel, but it's not working out for me like that. Why? Because I look at the wicked and I see their, and most translations translate this, their prosperity. 
But the term there is a term that you'll be familiar with. Because I look at the wicked and I see their shalom. I see their abundance of living. I look at the wicked and I see that they're enjoying peace, a wholeness of life, abundance of life. I look at the wicked and they're enjoying that. But Psalm 1 and Psalm 27 and some other Psalms promise shalom to God's people. It promises shalom to us. And yet when I look at the world from a bottom-up reality, and again, this is the standpoint that he's looking from, it just doesn't seem to be working out that way. So what the writings do, I think, at their core, not all of them, but some of the major bits of the writings, force us to come to terms with what do we do when what we believe, surely God is good to Israel, comes into direct conflict with what we're actually experiencing. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. And so this is the kind of tension that I think we begin to feel as we move into the writings. Um, I wanted to focus, I've done a, a lot with you all in the past on the Psalms, so I don't want to really focus on the Psalms this morning. I'd like to look at what's been traditionally known as the wisdom literature, three books, and this, you know that we're going to look very quickly here, um, but, but Proverbs, but Job, and Ecclesiastes. So what is Proverbs about? Well, Proverbs are wise sayings about life, general maxims about how the good life is to be lived. And there's a lot of borrowing that's going on in the book of Proverbs. We might refer to this as borrowed capital um, from, some of the, from some of the wisdom of the Egyptians. Some of the wisdom of the surrounding Mesopotamian cultures are borrowed in the book of Proverbs and that are brought in there. But what makes Proverbs unique compared to its ancient Near Eastern setting what makes it unique is the location of the fear of the Lord in the whole process of wisdom and the whole process of thinking about living skillfully, especially in those places where the law or the Word of God doesn't speak clearly on matters. Now, this is a side moment. I was taught to lay my cards out on the table for you today. I'm becoming more and more convinced that so many of the issues that we deal with and the reality of our lives, whether it's church life, whether it's your business life, whether it's your familial life, has to do with wisdom probably more than the ability to make direct connections between the Bible and my particular moment. I, I genuinely believe that latter part's true, and we need to do that. But there are so many times when you run into all of the exigencies of life that you have to wrestle with, well, I don't know what to do in this moment. I need wisdom here. I think it's why James in his gospel, or his letter, the one that, remember Luther didn't like that one too much, Luther was wrong. Um, <laughs> that one, that, that, that epistle of James where James says, if you lack wisdom, ask God for wisdom. I mean, what's the underside of that statement from James? You do lack wisdom, therefore you need to be asking God. I mean, you all have been in church life long enough to know this. I've got three kids at home. Um, you know, this is, so I'm in the realm of parenting. And we, I mean, we've kind of stopped this and we probably should, but we sort of became experts in reading parenting books. You know, I read one book and I go, that's it. That's what, that's going to be our, that's our method right there. Right. And then another one to come out. No, 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 I don't, I'm going to do this one here. This is going to be my method. 
Um, and then we're going to be great. This kind of running journey. It's grace-based parenting. Like, a, let's be grace-based. I believe that. I believe all that's really important. But if anything can sort of rip a church apart, at least in some of my experience in the past, it's people finding a particular parenting method, and then it working for them. That's the bad part, right? It works. And now it becomes a kind of universal appeal of wisdom that I've discovered, and everyone needs to do the same thing. And if they don't, well, they're just not as enlightened as I am on this particular matter. It's a kind of neo-Gnosticism, we might call it, right? Special knowledge that we have. Do you know what the Bible has to say? Oh, boy, I'm off script. Do you know what the Bible has to say about the mechanics of parenting? Almost nothing. I mean, that's a hard thing. It gives you certain instincts, like Deuteronomy 6. Train your children. Talk to them about the Word of God. Talk about it when you're out on the sidewalk, when you're out in the yard playing, when you're in the truck on the way to wherever. Talk to your children all the time. Book of Proverbs. Train a child in his or her own way, which I think is a better way of rendering that. Train a child according to their own particular makeup, and in the end they will not depart from it, except for... When they do. Right. <laughs> right? I mean, this is, this is the realm, I think, in which we live. And this is where Proverbs and really the whole of the wisdom literature forces us to come to terms with these matters. That, and, and by the way, it's why I think the book of Job is so important. Have you ever been troubled? I was very troubled by this as a teenager. Reading Bildad, Zophar, and Eliphaz, these three friends of Job who see him at a distance at the campfire, scraping boils off of his body, right? You know that scene, the end of Job 2. And the Bible says, and they did not talk with Job for seven days. That was Job's friends at their very best. When they weren't talking, when they weren't giving parenting advice at that moment, or they weren't giving advice about, they were quiet. But then, as we are wont to do, me too, they began to talk. And as I've read some of those things, and you maybe have experienced this too, Bildad, Zophar, Eliphaz, they start to talk, and I go, oh my, I can find Bible verses to support everything they're saying. But I know, because I have the kind of the perspective of the whole of the book to know that by the end of the book of Job, what's Job doing for his three friends? He's sacrificing for them and making atonement for them. Why? Well, the narrative tells us very clearly they were wrong. What do we see in the book of Job canonically as it's placed within this context of Proverbs and Job and Ecclesiastes? What is Job showing us with Bildad, Zophar, and Eliphaz? It's showing us that wisdom can be applied unwisely. Wisdom can be applied in an unwise way. And that's why we need wisdom in our application of wisdom. That's where we're left. In a real posture of of dependence. And then you come to a book like Ecclesiastes. Well, there's a book that sort of fits right within the postmodern self, does it not? I looked around me. And I saw that everything was, here's another Hebrew term for the morning, everything was hevel. Right? I, um, I, t- I taught 
a summer class down the summer down at Knox Theological Seminary, and um, it was a video thing in, in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. The current Old Testament scholar there is a fellow by the name of Bruce Waltke. Um, Bruce Waltke is a uh, I don't know how to put this. He's kind of a rock star within evangelical Old Testament scholarship. And not just evangelical Old Testament scholarship, but he's, as one of my profs in seminary called him, he's Moses. He's really old. I mean, he's like in his late 80s, maybe even early 90s, but he's still teaching along. Well, as I was teaching in this little room and they were doing the videoing, I noticed that there was some ashes in a tray underneath the podium. And the story goes that apparently Bruce Waltke was teaching a course on the wisdom literature in Ecclesiastes, trying to explain what Hevel was, right? And he pulled out a cigar and lit it in front of the class and began to smoke it. And then, as the smoke began to rise, Waltke says, that's what Hevel is. It's vapor. It's smoke. It's what most of our English translations call vanity. But I think even a, and by the way, by identifying that word as smoke or as vapor, it doesn't really get us to the connotative effect of what that word actually is about. And I lean really heavily on a scholar named Michael Fox who's argued that his understanding of this vanity, this smoke, this vapor, all is vapor, all is smoke, is probably better rendered, I'm convinced by this, as absurdity. It's all absurd. I mean, I look underneath the heavens and what do I see? I just see absurdity upon absurdity. Everywhere I turn, it's absurdity. I mean, do you feel this sort of thing? I was just reading something about, apparently, Tolstoy, right after he wrote Anna Karenina. And then he wrote The Death of Ivan Ilinovich, and he wrote his own own autobiographical reflections post that. You know what he says? What am I doing? What's the purpose of living? I mean, he just wrote one of the great novels of of the world. And he's like, why do I live? Why do I exist? Everything is absurd. It's a very, very poignant existential question that most of us face. I mean, here's a... I wanted to read this to you, the end of Ecclesiastes. It's going to get better this morning. Don't worry. I mean, this hits me right in the face. Ecclesiastes 12, verse 11 The saying of the wise are like goads and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings which are given by one shepherd. My son, be aware of anything beyond these. Of making many books there is no end and much studiness is a weariness of the flesh. Go get him, son. Have a great day at school. Right? I mean, this is the perspective of the preacher. He's helping people to recognize that when I look under the sun... There are so many absurdities that face us that at times it can leave us in a moment of existential paralysis. Do you ever feel that way? As maybe I think about this from a mothering perspective or a parenting perspective or a life in, I mean, one more infernal diaper. It's like, it's just absurd. It's just absurd, right? Or, you know, you're going to to work one more time. One more law case. It's absurd, one more patient, it's absurd, right? One more student, ask me about their B- that they got. It's absurd, right? <laughs> and then this is how Ecclesiastes ends. It's an honest portrait, by the way. And I, I, I like that we have a book like Ecclesiastes because it helps us to see that even in this realm that we live in, knowing that God has spoken, knowing that God has revealed Himself to us, knowing that we're redeemed, 
that what we said in church this morning is true. And not just that it's true, it's true for us. That there is still the reality of live life under the sun. And at times it can seize us with its chevel, with its vaporness, with its absurdity. And listen to how Ecclesiastes ends. The end of the matter, the telos, the goal of it all. All has been heard. Fear God and keep His commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. So you know what the preacher says here at the end of the book of Ecclesiastes? He says, when all is said and done, when you deal with all of the complexities of life, fear God and keep His commandments. Fear Him. To fear the Lord. The sort of growth of maturity to recognize that God is, that God has a claim on us, that it's initially terrifying that He has a claim on us, but that we find refuge in Him by submitting ourselves to Him and His will and His way for our lives. That's what it's all about at the end of the day, says the book of Ecclesiastes. And if we go back to the book of Psalms, we see how these things begin to sort of feed onto one another. But when we go back to the book of Psalms, we see that Psalm 73, Surely God is good to Israel, but as for me, my feet had almost slipped. We see that Asaph is on to something there. Because after he goes through all this difficulty, if I'd have said these things, he says, I would have betrayed your children. If I'd have got up in front of church, if I'd have gotten to the temple and let people know how, how I was really feeling, it would have been a betrayal of them. So I'm all disordered and disoriented. But then I came back into the sanctuary and then I understood their ways. Fearing God, keeping His commandments. What else do I have, says the psalmist at the end of Psalm 73, in heaven or on earth? What more do I have besides you? I've been preparing um, for Jason Wallace is here, his colleague of mine at Sanford, and he's, he's asked me to do a lecture to undergrads, which frankly has me extremely nervous. I do this this Thursday. Toss up some prayers, please. Um, so I'm speaking to undergrads about um, the way in which the classical world meets early Christianity. And so I'm, I'm trying to think about um, St. Augustine and how Augustine wrestles, early church father, wrestles with what does it mean to be happy? Isn't that the question that we ask so much? And the Bible's not unconcerned about that question. What does it mean to be happy? What does it mean to be fulfilled? What does it mean to know that kind of existence? The proper Hebrew term for that is shalom. What does it mean to have an abundant life? And Augustine thinks through this in light of his particular situation. He comes to a very psalm-like, Ecclesiastes-like understanding. Do you know what it's about? It's about loving God. Loving God. That is what the end of all things is, is loving God. But he doesn't leave us in a kind of schizophrenic way of understanding our life. In other words, you know, me looking at my wife Naomi or my kids and saying, I would love to spend some time with you, but I'm going to go love God now. Right? Um, well, I would love to help you know, pull some weeds in the backyard, but I need to love God today, and I'm afraid I won't be able to do that. Um, I've tried that. It doesn't seem to go. <laughs> Augustine doesn't leave us in that kind of bifurcated, schizophrenic understanding. He said that all of the, sort of the, the horizontal aspects of our lives are uses 
toward that ultimate end of loving God. So that in engaging my family and in engaging my yard and enjoying the bounty of this world and even the suffering of this world, all of those realities are uses toward our ultimate end and our ultimate joy, and that is God Himself. That's how Ecclesiastes and the wisdom literature leaves us. Yes, there are absurdities in this life. Don't you love that the Bible doesn't give you a kind of syrupy, platitudinous reflection on life? Just smile and get over it. Some of the songs that I used to sing in my youth group growing up, every day with Jesus is sweeter than the day before. Did you, any of you sing that growing up? That's like, that's great, except for the day when it's not, right? right? I mean, the Bible just doesn't give us that kind of syrupy, sentimental, hallmark Christianity. It doesn't do that. It allows the absurdities of our world and of our life to come right into the middle of the conversation. And then it reorders our perspective to say, yes, all of that is true. And you as a Christian are not exonerated from those realities. You're not. But here's what it's all about. And here's where we're going. Fear God. Love God. Because God is at the center of it all. And I would be remiss if I didn't take us at the end of this whole thing on the Bible, the Old Testament to really one of my favorite verses in the New Testament. Can I read it to you? 1 Corinthians 1.30 Let me back up and I'll get us to that point. For consider your call, brethren and sisterin. Not many of you are wise according to worldly standards. See, that's one of the things I love about the wisdom literature. It's not being driven by worldly standards. It's the wisdom that comes from above, to use James' language. Not many of you are wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you are powerful. Not many of you are of noble birth. That's good news for me. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. Oh, just a great dialectical thought there in Paul. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. That's the end of this. No one stands in the presence of God and boasts what we heard in our sermon this morning. No one gets to do that. Because He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus. And listen to this. Whom God made our wisdom our righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Jesus has been made all of that for you. Your wisdom, your righteousness, or your justification, if we use proper theological terms, your sanctification, that's, that's His too that you have in Him, and your redemption. All of it is in Him. So that if anyone is going to boast, He says in 1 Corinthians one thirty one, He will boast in the Lord. Lord, as we heard this morning, have mercy on me, a sinner. When you want to think about wisdom, you know what Paul tells us? When you want to sort of conceive of wisdom, the place to look hard is at the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's where true wisdom is to be found. 
And to the world, it's going to seem foolish. And to the powerful, it's going to seem really weak. But to those of us who are being saved, who are being redeemed, it's the very power of God unto salvation. He's our wisdom. He's our righteousness. He's our sanctification. He's our redemption. What's the end of it all? The end of it all is to fear God. And how is that conceived in a larger biblical Two Testament framework? That wisdom of God, that fear of God is conceived in succumbing our own lives to the person and work of Jesus Christ. Okay, let's bat this around. What are you angry about? What do you want to ask about? I was just going to make a comment. I don't know if y'all have heard about the um, girl from Tennessee. It's kind of going around YouTube. But she's about 21 now, and she was a homecoming queen and beautiful and everything. And she just, you know, loved God so much. I mean, that's really why it was no other reason that she just wanted to go to Uganda. And, you know, there there's all these orphans and, you know, it was a horrible, horrible situation with the children. And so when they show you know, the interview on the YouTube, she is the happiest person I've ever seen in my whole life. She is so happy because she's doing this. And she's this beautiful little upper-class, middle-class girl, and she says, I have a family of 14, and they all, you know, and she just, whatever. And the person interviewing her said, what made you do this? And she just said, I just love God so much. I mean, you know, but she's so happy, like what you said. And um, they were like saying, um, well, what if you're, father saying about this what are your parents saying well first of all she said we're just told by god to love you know lord your heart with all their soul and then love your neighbor as myself she says well i love god and i love myself and myself doesn't want to be hungry myself doesn't want to be without parents you know so she's taking it to the ultimate and she's you know so happy but they said well what is your father saying about this and she said he's dying he is absolutely dying he's so upset you know like we all might be that are and you look at her she's young and you know, up, you know, beautiful and upper middle class and all this. And she said, he's dying. He's absolutely dying. And I'm sorry that he's dying. She said, I love my earthly father. She said, and I love my heavenly father. And there's a conflict over this. So I've got to go with my heavenly father. And I was going, wow. I mm. mean, that's just the ultimate, I guess, of what you're saying. Mm. You know, but the main thing that struck me was how happy she was and joyful mm. because she was doing it. She loved God so much. Mm. So. I guess I'm reminded of uh, in Genesis 1 where God asked Adam where he is, and then when he asked Jacob, what is your name, it, uh, I guess you'd say they weren't putting, and as the three friends of Job were not putting God first in their decision-making, their life, they, they had turned to their own devices, I guess you'd say, their own worldly wisdom, and that's, I guess, ultimately death. Yeah, I mean, I think that, and you make a good point, and I think that's actually at the heart of the, of the wisdom literature is a recognition that, frankly, wisdom itself is not going to be able to deal with all of the vicissitudes of life. It's not going to. And that's what throws you back into that posture of dependence on God. I mean, I'll give you an illustration of this in my own life. I mean, if I told you this story, I'm, 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 stop me. Did I tell you about someone running into our building at our house? Did I, did I say that in here? I can't remember. 
So we have a little building in our backyard and um, the old old shed, cinder block shed. This neighbor came and said, I don't know if you know this, but like your eastern wall is about to fall in. I said, what? So I went back and our whole wall is about to go in. And uh, there was there's a big dumpster right next to it. And I'm just convinced. I'm convinced. The guy who emptied the dumpster lifted the dumpster up, brought it down, hit the top of the roof, then hit the wall, imploded the wall. It's just as, as clear as can be. So I called the guy, said, you know, let's come to some understanding on this. He said, we didn't do it. I'm like, yeah, yeah, you didn't do it. Okay, so I tried to do some more evidence searching. Called him back and said, you know, we've got to figure this out. And And then there's a card a week later on our front doorstep saying, please call me. And I call this fella, and he says, we do a subcontract for AT&T. I had a crew out there the other day, and we accidentally ran into your wall. Um, And we'd like to make good on that. So we'll... Wow. I had to call that guy back. I was like, I was wrong. I was wrong. I mean, that's, I think that's what we get, the sort of modesty and humility that's called for in a book like Ecclesiastes, um, given the complexity of life. Um, when, I was, when I was a youth director, before I had kids, I was the world's parenting expert. Right? <laughs> I mean, I just was the expert. And, um, and now I have three... And I, I, I am, I am loath. Maybe this is a, a flip to the other side, but I'm loath to give parenting advice. It's like I just, you know, I'm in the, I'm in the deep end of the pool, drowning. I'm not giving you advice. Grab the buoy with me. That's what we'll do. Right? <laughs> yeah, so anyway, alrighty, we'll see you.